The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today is an artist whose work, once seen, is hard to forget. Growing up on a family farm that at one point has llamas, 200 goats and a pair of ostriches, she still works with animals today, but in a rather unconventional way. She studied English literature at university, but it was her job as a bartender at the Shoreditch Electricity Showrooms that introduced her to new artists and saw her start creating her own work in the form of taxidermy. It wasn't long before she was going to parties thrown by Damien Hirst and selling pieces to Kate Moss, and she recently won the first Plinth Award. She describes those who question her art as childish, asking, why anthropomorphize the animals? All you can say I'm doing at the very worst is depriving a crow of a meal. My guest today is the taxidermist Polly Morgan. So Polly, thank you for joining us today. On this podcast, we'd like to begin by asking her in the same question, which is, would you describe your childhood as a happy one? In the main, yes, it was. It wasn't perfect, but I mean, it was it was great. I had two older sisters and we got on very, well, we kind of fought like normal sisters do, but we're very close now. My mum and dad weren't happily married and they'd really struggled with money. But I think all of those things ended up actually being a help probably in the long term, not a hindrance. It was quite an eccentric childhood. My, we didn't actually have a farm, but my dad had loads of animals and he used to, used to rent the odd field off local farmers and he was always setting up businesses with animals involved somehow they were kind of integral to the the business but he wasn't a businessman he wasn't business minded and he was quite easily exploited by other people I think it's fair to say I, I remember one of the biggest fights my parents had they were I mean they were really screaming at each other which they didn't do very often they just didn't get along very well but I asked her years later what the fight was about and she said it was because my dad had been owed quite a significant amount of money for them anyway at the time and she'd found out that he'd instead of taking the money he'd been paid for it with about 200 goats instead so there was a big truck arriving with loads of goats which just had to be fed and looked after and obviously cost money and that was kind of his attitude he he was very sentimental towards the animals and he would never none of them were killed they were all they were either bred for their fur or yeah the ostriches we had briefly that was for oh that was during the BSE crisis when everyone thought ostrich meat was gonna well some people thought ostrich meat was going to become the new steak so my dad invested in a pair of ostriches and then which are really expensive I think a mating pair but then one of them dropped dead so that wasn't much good do they have names animals, no because we didn't actually those ostriches weren't they weren't very local to us but the llamas and the goats and everything did uh, well some of them did we had our favorite ones but it, it was kind of an eccentric childhood looking back on it because I spent a lot of time just helping out with the animals, trying to like herd goats back in off a main road. They were constantly breaking out of the field. That's one of my most enduring memories is just being woken in the middle of the night or it felt like the middle of the night to me at seven years old and I'm running around in my nightie in the middle of a main road trying to get goats back into a field. (laughs) Um. And if he was uh, renting fields, did you often have to move the animals from field? Yeah, they got moved around a bit. Yeah, there was one or two that were off in it, yeah. There was all of that sort of stuff that went on. But it was, it was, we were in the countryside and we had like so much freedom. And 
we would just go off on our bikes and go and like make dams, me and my sisters in the streams. We had a lot of freedom. We'd go and build dens in haystacks in the local farmer's place. It was great. And then we started working quite young. I remember I had a, actually I had a Saturday job with one of your columnists who lived locally, Prue Leith. My sister, my eldest sister had the Saturday job first and then it got kind of passed down to my other, to then my middle sister and then me, the youngest. And we got progressively worse at the job as we went down. My eldest sister was brilliant, super efficient and, and Prue loved her. Middle sister, yeah, she's kind of okay and I was completely hopeless. And I think I got fired. Which what I've always was been the job? It was just... I don't know what we were, we were just helping her out in there. We used to make her husband coffee at exactly 10 a.m. And then we would help wash up, help cook. But I knew nothing about cooking. I knew nothing about any of the ingredients. She'd tell me to go off and put, pick some mint or coriander from the garden. And then I'd just go into... And I was so scared of her. I was just... I'd be completely paralyzed by fear thinking shall I just go and pick some random green stuff or shall I risk using her phone which I wasn't allowed to do and ring my mum and get my mum to describe it to me down the phone which is what I would invariably do we were just yeah all kinds of things like that it was quite it was quite an education in a way actually she was she was great she was very firm but quite fair she was fair only she fired me for something that I didn't do and I'm still bitter about it to this day and I'd love her to know that. Maybe I'll see her at one of your parties and I'll be able to tell she her. She might it listen wasn't to me. this podcast. What well, did she If you're listening, for? she took me... She has me... been on, so... I, I know, I heard, her, I heard her one, actually. She was one of my... Uh, I listened to her before coming in. Well, she took me off into a room and said she needed to speak to me and she said that these bunch of flowers that I was supposed to put in a vase of water the day before, which I did and put on a table in her sitting room, apparently she'd found the vase empty and water all over one of her favourite sofas. So she was convinced that I'd somehow managed to empty the vase out onto the sofa before putting it back onto the table to pretend I hadn't done it. I protested and protested, but the more I protested, the more she was convinced that I wasn't just crap, but I was a liar as well. And then she never asked me back after that. But someone someone else did it. It wasn't me. If you knew who that person was. Um, <laughs> I tried blaming it on the dog, which was a bit ridiculous because the dog couldn't have done that. But someone did it. The dog could have knocked it over though. Yeah, but they wouldn't have righted it again. That's uh, That was her point. At that point, I just kind of fell silent because I knew she didn't believe me. She does have a son who's now a Tory MP. Hmm. I remember him. He used to come in and get Coca-Cola from the fridge. Maybe he's one to look at Danny Creek. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go through him. Now, was he responsible? Actually, a friend of mine went out with her nephew, Sam, who works here at once. And I'm sure I cornered him drunk in a party and ranted about it. (laughs) This will have a resolution. Now, growing up, were you artistic? How was school? Were you academic? I was more artistic, but I I was quite academic. I, I hesitate because I was always told I wasn't academic at school. But actually, I was, I think more so than they I went to a very academic school so out of the people at the school I was probably one of the least because they they all seemed to go off and become doctors and lawyers and I definitely just wanted to be in the art room all the time but that wasn't really encouraged but then I did well I got good grades but only no I wasn't that academic I don't know I think I'm really good at learning how to pass a test that's what I did but I wasn't that engaged with academia no I was much more into drama and art uh, none of those things were particularly nurtured at my school, I don't think. So I would just kind of, every time I was, whenever I was at home, I would be messing around making stuff. Um, you went on to study English literature at university. So why did you pick that topic? I think I just wanted quite to... A, come... It's quite a go... I know it's people who just pick it. Exactly. It was one of those. I wanted to come to London. I had a boyfriend who lived in London at 16 and I had decided that I just wanted to live in London. So I only applied to London universities. 
I hadn't done our A level, which was a bit stupid of me. I had I, weirdly, I I used to, I went through a strange phase. I say strange because I just can't fathom it now because I would hate to act. But I wanted to be an actress briefly as a teenager, and so I did theatre studies for A level instead of art, which meant I couldn't then apply for art college, which was a mistake, I guess. But, you know, in the long, I found a weird circuitous route to art anyway. And I just was okay. I was quite good at English. I, I seemed to do quite well in English literature. So it seemed like the obvious thing to do. But it kind of killed all interest in literature going to university because I was expected to read four books a week and I couldn't even read one a week. So um, I just sort of stopped reading around then, I think. <laughs> just <in> that. <laughs> yeah. You said uh, previously you didn't particularly enjoy your university experience. Why was no. that? Well, firstly, because I thought I was coming to London and I was actually in the halls of residence in South Woodford, which was basically Essex. And yeah. I remember, I mean, that was massive crushing disappointment. Driving, th- We were just driving through South Woodford and looking for the halls of residence, my mum and I. And I was getting more and more angry about the fact that she was about to drop me off here. And I was saying, this is just, this is not what I want. And then I saw this like really, I saw the most kind of derelict, crappy looking tower block overlooking the A12. And I pointed at that and I said, you're probably, it's probably going to be there. And she said, oh, don't be ridiculous. Of course it won't be there. You know, I'm sure it'll be lovely. And we drove around in circles trying to find it. And then of course that was exactly where it was. And I was like on the 12th floor overlooking the A12. It was like a little cell. It was horrible. And I would think I was quite mature at that age. I'd already been coming up to London and having, going to parties and having fun a bit. And my, I've got older sisters, so I had older friends. And I've everyone there just, I just remember the first night, them all crushing into this student bar downstairs and getting completely wasted and shagging each other. And it, it didn't quite time with what I, I wanted to do, I don't think. Didn't seeing the university experience, yeah, perhaps and coming then, of age. You and I was for. shy. I was really shy. I think that was the other thing. I was kind of, I was shy around people who I didn't instantly feel any kind of connection to. And I, I found it. It was already quite cliquey. I think a lot of the people there were from London and maybe they all knew each other already. Then I was never one of those people who would volunteer. I, I would sit, I would have all kinds of thoughts sitting in the lectures, but I would never stick my hand up and say anything. So I kind of got lost a bit there. I just didn't make any friends. And then I got a job at this bar that you mentioned and I made all my friends there and I had a completely separate life there. And that was like my university, really. And that was in Shoreditch, which I imagine was more the type of London you were expecting when you headed to the capital. No, actually, not then. No, it was. <laughs> I remember going there. Someone I'd heard it, it was it was going to be this cool place at some point, and I had already been there a few times because my boyfriend lived in Stoke Newington and he had friends down there. But I'd heard that the bar there that I ended up working in served absinthe because it was quite new to serve absinthe at that time, and there was very few places selling it. So I arranged with my with I did I made one friend briefly at university, and I arranged with her to go and drink absinthe there. And we got there and there was absolutely nothing in the area. Everything just looked completely just unused and a bit derelict. And apart from this one bar and it was completely empty and there was like absolutely no kind of vibe at all. And we sat on a little table by the window and uh, I went to the bar and there was a... There was a... Bringing up a G-Series who happens to now be your podcast editor? I don't know if I should Ask say Ask that. Do you want to get on the mic and say hi? <laughs> uh, and I, I asked the barman, who looked really sullen and bored, uh, if there was any jobs going. Is this you? Yes. Great. 
our handsome podcast producer back then. Yes, so, and, yes. He, and he said he gave you a job. Uh, no, he didn't. Uh, he said there were none going. But then someone didn't turn up that night collecting glasses, and I got a call from the manager asking me to come in and do that. So I started as a glass collector, and then and it was busier in the evenings. And then Shoreditch did start to kind of happen around that time, but it was really it, it wasn't much at the time. No, but um, it definitely felt like. The people there were my kind of people. I felt instantly much... I just got on with the people working there, the people drinking there. It was great. And I ended up staying in that bar throughout... through Because I needed I, I needed financial help to pay through university because I didn't have any family money. And then so I kind of used to... Ended up working like four or five shifts a week, I think, through university. And then when I graduated... And I, you know, just had no idea what I was going to do. They offered me the position of manager. So I ended up managing it for a few years afterwards. And, and during that time, because I suppose we're trying to explain how you got from there to your to your mm. current work as an artist. Did you meet many artistic types? Was it, did it, anything there kind of lead you to taxidermy? Yeah, it's difficult to plot the exact trajectory. But yes, I met loads of artistic types. I mean, it was the bar where all the so-called YBAs were drinking. So they were all, I was very familiar with all of them. I became friendly with some of them. The White Cube Gallery was around the corner so, and other galleries were popping up and they, we were always kind of off to get free beer at private views and things. The people who worked behind the bar, they were all, they pretty much all were like art or fashion students or graduates. And I think it was just more that I started to realise that despite doing English literature, I wasn't really that interested. I tried to, I did a little bit, I did like an internship at The Independent and I did like some kind of journalism course and I just didn't feel... I remember at the journalism course, it was this, this three-month thing they did at LCP. And at the end, they went round through the class. There was like 12 or 14 of us or something. And they said, asked everyone to announce what they'd learned from the course. And I just said I'd learned that I didn't really want to be a journalist. It, well, it was good. It was useful for that. Quite well, actually. You know, the, I think, weirdly enough, the, the tutor I ended up going on a bender with a few months later because he, he came into the showrooms and he, he said that I'd probably made the right decision, I think he said. No, it just occurred to me that I, I was just much more artistic than and I should have been doing something like that. I probably should have gone to the art college, but didn't. So I just sort of had to find my own way. I was I did a photography course. I was always like messing around with I'd go like on my days off. I'd just go and buy a bag of clay and like mess around. I didn't really have any direction, though. I didn't know what to do with any of those things. And I also was surrounded by lots of people who were already doing very well at painting or photography or a lot of these more popular mediums and I just didn't really see how I could bring anything to that and then it was almost like I had a mental checklist of things to learn and then taxidermy came up because I was trying I just wanted to buy some taxidermy for my flat that I was living in I eventually got given a flat above the the um I went from glass collector to manager with a flat above the shop for a bit so I went from having a tiny box room in a shared house to suddenly having my own flat and I had absolutely nothing to put in it started trying to buy some taxidermy online looking for stuff online but I couldn't find anything that I wanted and I realized that I wanted it to look dead uh, not because I'm morbid like as lots of people have written but because I think I just find taxidermy more effective when the animal looks dead because you know almost instantly if you look at a taxidermy bird that's mid-flight or that's perched on a twig inside you know it's dead because it wouldn't be perched on a twig or mid-flight inside it's like you know there's a frozen moment if it looks dead it's much more you can kind of extend that trick I guess anyway that is a very very wordy response to your question but I finally hit on taxidermy I realized there weren't people really making it in the way that I wanted it displayed so 
I decided to do it myself and I went and found someone who could give me a lesson. Yeah, I've got in my notes you took a one-day course. Yeah. Is it? Well, there wasn't really anything. There was a three-day course, but I couldn't really take that three- and five-day course. But they were quite expensive and I couldn't take that kind of time off work so easily. And I'm also, I'm not really a team player. I like, And I think I, I learn a lot better when it's one-to-one. So I didn't want to be in a group of people learning. I wanted to have one-to-one tuition and I found a guy who offered lessons in Scotland and a friend of mine lived in Edinburgh so I decided to stay with her and then go and do this incredibly rushed pigeon and we did it we managed to do it in a day and I jumped back on the train back to London with it but I was really excited I really felt like I'd kind of hit on something that I could explore I'm quite I'm competitive and I think the thing is I didn't really know I didn't know anyone doing taxidermy so I had no competition that made it a lot of a kind of easy way to learn in a way so you've got your pigeon and that goes in your flat but yeah. at that point it's no longer just about decorating your flat you're thinking it's something you want to pursue and how do you start I suppose deciding what more you're going to do picking which animals well yeah I didn't I didn't have a plan I did I certainly didn't think it was going to become a career or like I would make money from it really I thought maybe I could supplement my income somehow if I got good at it by doing it but I didn't really expect anyone to like the stuff that I was making because I was making it for me, really. And I didn't think necessarily my taste would chime with other people. But then I had to hang around for weeks trying to get hold of a dead bird because I decided I didn't want anything killed. I mean, mostly it's illegal to kill stuff for taxidermy anyway, but you could get some game birds and stuff. Anyway, finally someone found a French-legged partridge and sent me, and then I did that on my kitchen table and would send pictures up to George, the guy in Edinburgh who taught me. And and then I had this sort of long-distance tuition, I guess, where I'd go and see him occasionally when I got the chance. And we became friends, and he just said that I could come and work alongside him in his workshops for free if I could get up to Edinburgh. So I would do that every now and then. But I just had all these ideas suddenly. As soon as I... I think every time, and I get this every time in my art. I mean, I, by the way, I call myself an artist, not a taxidermist, because I'm not really, I, I don't have the same concerns as a taxidermist at all. Their interest is in um, mimicking wildlife, really, and that's not really what I do. I always take them out of context and do something weird with them. And, and even now, I'm not even actually using the actual skins of snakes right now. I'm casting and painting them. But every time I've, I learn a new technique, so I've learned uh, molding and casting and now painting. It just opens up. It's, it's sort of like I've kind of crowbarred open a door somewhere and like I suddenly get flooded with all these ideas. So I think I then just started making stuff. It was really just a question of being in the right place at the right time as well because I think it was a quite a... It, yeah, it was being in the right place at the right time but also I feel like I gravitated to that place because I was sort of the right person for that place at that time, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I suppose for our listeners who are not completely well-versed in the world of taxidermy and and also an artistic approach to that can you just talk us through the basic steps so step one you have to locate a dead animal already Mm -hmm. dead and then does it have to can that be so this is a very stupid question but can that be roadkill yeah or does it have to be a certain what's the the kind of go-to route if you're trying to find animal carcasses you just have to be imaginative and just speak to people who work with them really I mean it's kind of lazy to kill anything anyway because they're always dying I've always depending on what it was I wanted to work with. When I was working with birds, I would speak to everyone I knew in the country, particularly people with cats, because cats bring things in. I actually, people with large windows would give me things quite a lot because birds were always flying into them and breaking their necks. Uh, So yeah, find someone with a very modern house 
then I would speak to breeders. I mean, the main thing is to get to speak to breeders because there's always deaths when you're breeding animals. Um, so snakes now, I get them all from snake breeders or snake rescue centers. Uh, and then from there, I suppose it depends a lot depending on the animal, but how long would it then take from getting that to, to having a piece produced? Oh, it depends a lot on... Well, if you were just doing straightforward taxidermy, which I don't do, if you were just yeah. doing starting oh, from... for you? But yeah, if you just started, if you wanted to just taxidermy a bird or taxidermy a snake, then it's a question of getting the animal, putting it in your freezer, unless you plan to start on it immediately, which most people don't. So you freeze it. Once you've frozen it, it'll, it's fine until you're ready to work on it. You thaw it out when you're ready to work on it, and then you skin it. So you normally make an incision along the breast and just sort of peel the skin off the whole thing. You skin things different ways depending on whether they're bird or mammal or, or reptile. And then you have to clean up the skin. You don't want any flesh or fat on the skin when you've finished. You tan the skin. Again, there's different ways of tanning different skins. And then you build a, an armature, like a body, a sculpture but to, to go inside. So you can have. So you might find like a squashed fox on the road. And then by the time you've skinned it, cleaned up the skin and washed it and dried it, it's looking beautiful again. Maybe it was a bit cut. You can stitch up any holes in it. And then if you want it lying on its back in a sort of playful pose, you could have that or you could have it running, whatever. It's just the, the body that you build that dictates the position it's in afterwards and then you stretch the skin over the top and stitch it up. And then for you at that point, you're working at how you want to present it because it's not just straightforward taxidermy. Yeah, but, well, because I'm... I, but what I do, I work with lots of other materials too. So it's not just that. I'm normally casting something for it to go alongside or something. So so my sculptures take a lot longer. Well, they don't all take a lot longer. Some of them are quite short. If they're quite small and not that complicated, others can take months. And how did it start becoming a professional thing for you? Because you mentioned how you, you thought maybe it'd be side earnings. But did people see them in your, see ones you had done and start wanting to buy them? And did it go from there? Yeah, well, what happened was there was... One of the co-managers at the electricity showrooms went off and opened a, a bar and restaurant called Bistro Tech in East London. And he had these, they had a deal with PlayStation, I believe it was, and they'd given them some glass domes PlayStation. They looked just like normal Victorian glass domes, but they had a small logo somewhere on them. And he wanted to have some kind of artworks or something to go inside them. And he knew that I was learning taxidermy. And he said, how about you put some taxidermy things in here? So I decided rather than just putting a straightforward piece of taxidermy, I'd kind of make these little scenes. And I did that. And that was really good. It was great that he asked me to do that because I'm I'm not good at finishing stuff unless I have a deadline. I just, I mean, like most people, I guess. But I, I was just sort of starting bits of taxidermy and just kind of leaving them lying around. When really you need to fix them down and really kind of work and paint them and make them perfect. And it was only when he asked me to do that that I was forced to, to actually make four complete little works. And then he suggested we had a little kind of unveiling party, which we did. And it was just that I knew so many of my friends were either working in or involved in art that the people who came and then also people used to drink and still do drink at Bistro Tech. They're all very creative types. So it felt like an art opening and it hadn't meant to be. And there was press there. And I remember some topless woman interviewing me for a show called Naked News it was all very weird and overwhelming and not at all what I'd expected but quite funny and then someone came up and started asking me loads of questions about the works and how much they were and how long it takes me to do them and whether I can produce more and and then as he left some someone else came up and said did you know that was Banksy which I didn't know oh, oh and then after that a friend of mine had a little uh, he was an artist, but he also had a gallery and he had a stand at the Zoo Art Fair, which was used to run the same time as Freeze Art Fair, but for younger galleries. And he wanted me to put some work in there and I put something in there and it sold 
before the fair even opened. And then when I was at the fair, I bumped into Banksy again and he asked me to do something for something that he was setting up. From that moment on, for quite some time, I just always had something else on the horizon, like someone would commission me or someone would ask me to put something in a show. And I just like just about managed to eke a living. I mean, it was a tiny living and I was living in effectively a shed on an industrial estate in Hackney Wick where the Olympic Park is now built. So my expenses were pretty low. It's not very, you know, I'm working with dead animals. They're not, the materials aren't that expensive. I just about managed to keep going. And then, uh, yeah, and I just kind of rolled with it. How do you decide the price for a piece of artwork, particularly when you're starting out? Because, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you, could, really, you could pretty yeah. much <laughs> well, say with anything. A bit, I mean, you never quite know. And I'm, I'm quite hesitant, even in like, salary negotiations. Like, yeah. I don't want to say too But I, I wonder, how, how do you go about it, especially well, luckily, in the early days? Yeah, well, that, well, I mean, because it was a zoo art fair, it was for younger galleries and none of the work was super expensive or it shouldn't have been in there really. The whole point was it's kind of more affordable. But yeah, I had the advice of the guy who was running the stand and my boyfriend at the time who was an artist and they both encouraged me to put it higher than I, I think it was £2,200 or something, the first work that I sold and I thought that was just like a staggering amount of money. And But that kind of set the price at that point. Once that sold, then everything sort of was around that mark or three, four grand. And a gallery takes 50% anyway, and then your expenses come off and you're not actually making a fortune, particularly as you're not then going to probably sell something for another few months. Yeah, then you just do your tax return. (laughs) (laughs) You give it all away. Uh, What did your friends and family think when you start doing more of this were any of them surprised or were they, uh, they surprised yeah but I think my mum was just so relieved I think she had always thought I she I just remember she always used to say oh what are we gonna do with you she just <laughs> she would just say it regularly to me like she had a lot of faith in me I think she she thought I was smart but she just I didn't I was sort of lacking focus I guess I mean I was only looking back on it now it, I was only 23 or 4 when I started to learn taxidermy, so it was not that bad. But at the time, it felt quite stressful, like I needed to get a job. My sisters had settled down to quite steady jobs quite early on, and I sort of wasn't showing any signs of doing that, and I was I didn't really want to do it. And I think um, she was just worried that I... Um, she just had no idea where I was going to end up. So she was really relieved, I think. She was proud and very, very relieved that it was actually proving to be something viable. And do you start having quite a glamorous lifestyle at this point? This in cuts, you know, talk of being invited to, you know, mansions and yachts of millionaires. Like, where? where did you read that? I, it's in my notes. Oh, in the well, past, yeah. you mentioned. Well, you, everyone in the yacht world yeah. does, actually, at some point. Maybe do you get to go in a yacht? Did I what? Have you but, got to go in a yacht? I have got to go in yachts. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> well, because people who buy art are rich and they like being around artists because other rich people are quite boring, I guess. You know, they will, a lot of the time, I think, when you're... A billionaire. Well, to each other. I think a lot of billionaires, or even millionaires, I guess they all just hang out with each other because if you're going to be complaining about the staff, you can't really do that around someone who's got no money or who is staff. So I think you just end up being a little bit isolated in your wealth. And actually, they want to have a more kind of diverse group of friends. And by buying art and hanging out with artists, it's like a it's access to a quite a different world, which they enjoy. And likewise, we quite enjoy it because we're mostly broke and we get given food and drink. I think that's all changing a lot now, though. That the art world is very different to the art world now to the one that I entered back then. We were all quite feckless and irresponsible, and we'd take any invite and jump on any plane and any yacht. But the artists these days are a lot more socially conscious. And as you were coming up, how did you find, I suppose, the media reception to your works? Because I mentioned in the introduction, you know, um, those you know question what you're doing. Have people been very critical? 
No, not really. People have been really nice. I mean, I get people, I've heard people slag my work off in galleries, but it's quite funny. I've been standing next to my work or near it and someone's come in and looked at it and obviously don't know I made it and they've said, oh, this is pathetic. But, but, do you, do you, you know. introduce yourself at that point? <laughs> uh, be I should have done, shouldn't I? <laughs> but no, no, I've had really good, I've, I was always really surprised. I got really nice, I've had really nice press. To start with, it was all based on like, oh, look, she's young and pretty and blonde and she stuffs animals and it was obviously just all about that. But I was happy to take anything that was on offer, really. I mean, if that was what got me noticed, fine. But then I did start to realise, no, I'm slightly joking there because I, I had a few things. I started to realise that actually the interest, I was getting more interested in fashion magazines and art magazines, which was not unwelcome, but at the same time I didn't, I was slightly worried that people weren't going to take me seriously as an artist because I was quite serious and I'm quite serious about what I do so I think with age and like you know looks slipping away that probably helps now the focus is much more on my art than it is on me and that's very good but people say nice things generally I mean there's definitely bad stuff out there if I really occasionally I've got a bit drunk and looked on the online and found blogs and things when people are being rude about me uh, but that was years ago, and um, I don't do that kind of thing anymore. I'm too busy. Never search your name, I think, is a good rule in life for anyone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, the first time I did that was before I was making anything. I remember before I did taxidermy or anything, and I had a friend who was like, I can't remember, they were a writer or something, and Googled them, and loads of stuff came up, and it looked really good. Early days of the internet. I remember Googling myself and hitting enter, and the first image that came up was a gravestone with my name on it. And that was about it. <laughs> Um, now you mentioned your latest exhibition on your work on snakes can you talk us through it was that a lockdown project or was that kind of sort of before has lockdown shaped what you've been doing yeah lockdown did shape it but it wasn't it was planned before lockdown and the pandemic was was before we'd even heard of covid I'd, I'd made a plan to have a show but then all of that happened and that was actually the period in which I made it and it did shape the work quite significantly I think and I was really lucky I managed to get it mate I'd like just to get a show on because it was really I've got two I've got a four-year-old and a two and a half year old and they were just at home all the time and it's so difficult to get any work done with them there but actually but my boyfriend's an artist too and he was home a lot more than he had been because he'd been traveling so much before so we kind of just like tag teamed the kids and the good thing is we live and work in the same place so suddenly that really came into its own and I would race down to the basement and work um, in my workshop and then I'd run up and take over the kids and he'd run down and do some work and the amazing thing is the show was there was like penciled in for October, which was just after things started opening up and there wasn't the you know, freeze art fair had been cancelled. So there was quite a lot of shows on, but nothing like as many as there probably would have been. And I think people were really keen to get out and see stuff. So I was worried about doing it. I thought maybe it was a bit pointless. It was just a bad year to show work. And then it actually worked out really well because the footfall was great and I had some really good reviews. And I was just, yeah, I was really happy that it, I felt very lucky that I even got to put it on because most things were cancelled. Now, I just got the final three quick questions. Okay. Um, and the, the first is, I suppose, looking back, on, is there a particular piece that is the most memorable for you? No. Well... Or is there one that you haven't want to sell? That started happening to me. It never, I, I never used to feel that way about it. I was always desperate to get rid of it. And I think my work's got better, which is good because I actually quite like hanging on to things now. And there was one I sold from my last show that I found really painful, but luckily it sold to a woman who I really like. And I sort of felt, and she said, you can come and see it whenever you want. So I'm quite happy about that. <laughs> the thing is, if you don't get rid of stuff, it sort of occupies your space and your mind. And I think you do need to just, it's like having kids. You just got to let them go and just kind of 
move on to the next project. What's in your freezer now? Have you got any oh. other than your know, fish fingers or peas? Yeah, <laughs> well, that and then also quite a lot of chopped up snakes, some whole snakes, some skin snakes, a cat, giant rabbit, one of those giant indoor pet ones, which has been there for about 12, 14 years since my friend's dog killed her pet rabbit. And then just loads of other little birds and mice and just everything. I get given so many things. I've started turning stuff down now because I'm not working with birds and mammals as much. But You must have a really big freezer. Oh, I've got several freezers, yeah. I used to have five, but I'm, I'm down to two now. I'm trying to slim down a bit. And have you got a separate food freezer? I do now, yeah. I mean, things sneak down and up sometimes. The one up, the kitchen freezer's currently got a couple of birds in, I think, that someone's given me. But yeah, there's quite a I good I would worry separation. after a few drinks. <laughs> yeah. I'm getting really hungry. <laughs> now, the final thing I wanted to ask, which is the question we ask everyone on this podcast, which is, I mean, we're talking about your career and it sounds so broadly it's been a very positive experience. But so this might go back to uni or school, but, you know, what is the worst advice you've ever been given, whether or not you decided to take it? Well... It would have been given to me by my mother, sorry, if she if you're listening. And she told me to marry a rich man. And marry a rich man and and you know settle down or or just marry a rich man and then you won't have to worry about work. I'm very happy I didn't do that. I think there's so much stuff that I have achieved has come about because I haven't had money. I've had wealthy friends and I've looked at them and I really I sounds ridiculous in this age where we think about privilege all the time but I feel really sorry for some of my the friends who grew up with lots of money because that motivation that I had is just totally lacking and they don't and also if you grow up with parents who've been wildly wildly successful at something or other you've got such a high standard to live up to and I just yeah and and the other anyway that's that that's the growing up with money thing but marrying money too it's not my money it doesn't count it's only ever counted for me when I've earned my own money and it's really given me such a buzz to be completely self-sufficient and I I bought myself a a flat a house flat um, when I was about 30 and it was like the most my kind of proudest achievement because I did it without any help at all and I just all of those things they just contribute to my overall happiness I think Thank you, Polly. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk. Hold up. 